If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From instructing the actors of Wolf Hall on the authentic way to shoot their bows and arrows, to crafting swords for historical fantasy shows like The Witcher, Leo Todeschini, better known as Todd of Todd's Workshop, has done it all. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, caught up with him to take a behind-the-scenes peek at creating replica historical weapons for film and TV. So, Todd, to start us off with, can you just tell us what it is that you do in a nutshell? I am, for want of a better term, a medieval craftsman in the sense that a lot of people would know what a cutler is. So a cutler is somebody who makes swords and knives and things. But actually, I do a whole breadth of things. So I make swords, knives, crossbows, sword scabbards, um, dress accessories. So that'd be things like belts and purses and stuff. So there's not really a word that covers what I do, uh, and certainly not a historical word, you know, like shoemaker, for instance, or scabbard maker. Um, so I just do a lot of different things, but using the same materials, metals, woods, leather, even a bit of precious metal sort of jewellery work. Just I cover a lot of different areas, but using the same palette of natural materials, really. So you said that you focus quite a lot on the medieval period, but have you ever made weapons or armour from any other periods? Well, the thing about working on the medieval period is that everything was done by hand. 
everything was handwork. And, uh, you know, that's obviously the case. But as soon as you start to get really post-English Civil War, so post about 1650-ish, items start to become more mass-produced. And so even just simple things, like in the early days, you would stamp your mark on a blade and it would be a, a wolf or a rising sun or whatever it is you wanted. Post-English Civil War, you'd start beginning to sort of name things. So it'd be Nuian sons or whatever it would be. And so the whole look and feel of things starts to change. And that's where my passion falls away. So really anything post about 1650. But would you make um, Roman weapons, for instance, are you quite interested in the ancient world as well and the kind of weapons they had? Uh, Yes. I mean, the thing is, a weapon is a tool and I'm interested in tools. And it's a pretty singular tool and fairly unpleasant in many ways, but it is nonetheless a tool. And so I get excited about a modern lathe or I get excited about an ancient Greek sword. It doesn't really matter to me. I just like the fact of of what it is as a tool. And... Yeah, the Roman stuff is lovely. The ancient Greek stuff is is lovely. But the further you go away from, let's say, the year 1500, the less information there is on items and the harder it becomes to reproduce them convincingly mm. and in a way that makes me happy. You know? Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. And that leads into the next thing that I wanted to talk about is... When you sit down and say, I want to make a replica weapon, what kind of sources do you have available to find out what it would have looked like, what materials it would have been from, how it would have been made? How do you find that out? It can be very straightforward or it can be really quite difficult. So obviously the gold standard is that you can go to the museum, you can examine the object, um, you can measure it, you can draw it, you can photograph it and handle it because the way things feel is really quite important as well. And all those things are possible with some museums and harder with others. But also it's just not practical. You know, if there's something in a museum in Vienna, it's just I can't just pop over like I could pop down to London, for instance. And um, what that means is you have to start getting the most pictures you can get. You know, the more pictures you've got, the better. But also, although objects were not standardised, they do tend to follow sort of certain patterns. So if you have a sword of a certain length from the same kind of period. So let's just say a longsword from 1400. It might look a bit different to another longsword from 1400, but fundamentally they were used in the same way. They were used for doing the same job and fighting the same kind of individuals. So the way it's balanced, the kind of weight, the blade thicknesses at various points along its length are all going to be relatively similar. So what you can't do from a photograph is just look at it and go, well, I can make an exact copy of this thing. You, you can't especially if you've only got two or three photos, for instance. But what you can do is say, quite convincingly, I can make a really good working sword that's very much in the style of this and would fit completely in with 20 others that were made at the time. But it's not a standard object. It never will be. But you can, you can, from what you understand of other objects that you have examined, you can just put that language together and you'll know pretty closely what the object is supposed to be like. And when you're making a replica object, obviously in the modern age, we have a lot of equipment that they wouldn't have had back then. How do you feel about using modern technology and modern equipment to make weapons? Are you fine with it and take advantage of it? Or do you prefer using more historical techniques? Sometimes it works both ways. So um, the first thing we have to appreciate is that I am a commercial enterprise. I'm here to make money. And so 
I could, for instance, grind a blade. So, so when you make a sword blade, it's forged out and it's forged more or less to shape and then it's ground. Well, historically, you, you grind the surfaces on it, you clean it up, you polish it on a human or a water-powered or a horse-powered wheel, something like that. So um, that was how it's done then. Now, the fact that I have removed the horses and I put an electric motor on that wheel, it doesn't really change the, the object that you're making. It doesn't make any difference to that. And if I want a round hole, I could drill that hole using an electric drill and a modern drill bit, and I get a round hole. Or I can punch that hole uh, using a hot punch and you know, and you file it fully round or whatever it is, and you end up with a round hole. There's no difference between the two, except that one has taken you five minutes and the other one has taken you four hours. And when it comes to paying your mortgage, I like the five minutes, not the four hours. So um, basically that's it. You try, what you have to do is you, every process has a witness to it, leaves a, a history behind itself. And as long as you then cover that history so that it looks like a, an old way of doing things, then that's fine. And it would turn, you know, my items cost a lot of money. I won't make any bones about it. But it will turn something that is, you know, a reasonable amount of money but is affordable into something that would just be crazy expensive if I did it a different way. But then there's other processes where, you know, carving a wooden handle, I carve it like I, they carved it then. There's just no way of going around that. So I use machines and cheap when I can, and when I can't, then it's done by hand. And that's just the way it is. And some processes cannot be done by machine. So in one of your videos on your YouTube channel, you say that when you're making historical replicas, you don't always want it to look exactly like the thing that you're replicating. Why is that? Now, talking of handwork becomes a, uh, a very interesting side of things because you can see the human eye is fantastic at seeing slight deviations from normal. And the subconscious is fantastic at filling in gaps. And when we were at school, I don't know, I'm sure we all did that thing where you can draw three quarters of a circle, but not the last quarter. And you say to somebody, what shape is that? And they go, oh, it's a circle. You know, it doesn't need, to, you, your brain fills it in. It just does it. And it's the same with the subconscious. And if something is too perfect, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look handmade. It looks machine made. And but there's a real problem with making modern items now or making reproduction items now is that if you've just spent £2,000 on a sword, you want your sword to be perfect. Of course you do. But if I make you a perfect sword, it won't look perfect because it won't look like the ones in the museums. That's what I want it to be. But the ones in the museums actually can be really, really badly made. And, and the thing is, we all have this concept that craftsmen in the medieval world were just fantastically skilled and they were brilliant at what they did. And in many respects, they were. But they too had mortgages to pay or whatever their equivalent was. And they too had to eat. And they need to get it out that day. And it means that for you and I, what would be grossly badly finished was just normal then. And, and you can see if you look for it, because we have it in our mind that the stuff in museums is perfect. But if you go to the museums and you look for it, you know, you can see it's not. I mean, there's a fantastic example is the um, tournament armour from uh, Henry VIII's tournament armour from the Field of Cloth of Gold. If you look down the front of it, you know, this is 
one of the richest men in Europe, one of the most powerful, fantastic people in Europe who's trying to make the best impression he possibly can. The front of his armour has got a whole load of holes which have been filled in where hinges were put in in the wrong place. And you can see it. You know, it's there to be seen. And somebody did it and they went, oh, cop that one up. Bam, punched it, filled it in. Oh, that'd be great. And, and that's for Henry VIII, you know. And so if you ex- extend that philosophy down to, you know, a normal kind of guy, you know, of course this stuff's going to be rough as hell. I mean, there's a lovely sword from somebody, I forget who it was. It was a French archbishop, I think. I think. But anyway, he had a beautifully enamelled pommel on his sword. Fantastic piece of work. And it's been put on completely at an angle, not just a little bit, but maybe five degrees off. And presumably, he went and he looked at this sword and he just went, yeah, nice work. Because, you know, he had enough money that he could have asked for it to be done again, but he didn't. And so the whole concept of sort of medieval aesthetics, not just the styles, but what's acceptable, is very different back then to to how we would view it. You know, because that guy looked at his massively expensive sword with its quite clearly on, on crooked pommel and just went, yeah, I like it. He didn't ask for it to be done again. And... That's great, but in a modern context, if I sold you a two, three, four thousand pound sword with a pommel that was completely squiff, it would be coming back. Um, And yet it's true true to what was. So there's a very strange balance between what's modern acceptable, but not perfect, but not rough as you like, you know. Mm, Definitely. That's great. Um, So changing tack slightly... One part of your YouTube channel that I definitely fell down the rabbit hole of was when you debunk myths, uh, particularly to do with medieval weapons. And the series of episodes that I really enjoyed was to do with Agincourt. So for any of our listeners who aren't aware of why the English longbow is remembered as being so powerful and so impressive at Agincourt, can you briefly tell them why we remember it as being this really incredible weapon? Well, fundamentally, I mean, if you take an example of uh, a battle like Agincourt, you had um, an army that was very much down at heel. It had been pursued over large chunks of of northern France for for weeks. They were moderately ill. I mean, it's debatable, but there's certainly illness within their ranks. Their numbers were certainly depleted. Um, They would have been tired. They would have been a bit worried because there was certainly a good chance they weren't getting home. You know, things were not cut and dried. And they were being chased and pursued by a very large and very effective French force. And yet we won the day staggeringly, resoundingly. I mean, nobody knows the numbers and they're all made up. But somewhere along the lines of a British force of, let's say, 6,000 and a French force of 30,000. And um, we absolutely trounced them. And that was in very large part, definitely not completely, but in large part to the use of the English longbow. And that carried on and had preceded it through the Hundred Years' War period, really until the French began to understand how to defeat the bow as a weapon. Um, But it was just enormously effective. But what has happened because of these staggering victories that occurred, a whole mythology has grown up around the longbow that it was some sort of super weapon and, and so on. But part of the irony is that basically all other nations had bows of the same kind of strength, made of the same kind of materials, of the same, you know, the same performance. But we had adopted a set of laws and interest, pride in the longbow, that meant that we could present an awful lot of strong shooters that could shoot powerful bows a long way. 
So it became an enormously important part of the, British, of the English army. And we won the victories. But the question is, how did we win the victories? And that's what I've been trying to look at. Because you read accounts and they talk about people being shot through the chests or the devastating power of the bow and how it defeated armour and so on. And there's even paintings of people with arrows sticking out of their chest plates. But the thing is, if you haven't been there, as an example, and somebody goes, oh, he was shot in the chest. Well, if you're an artist, you'll go away and you'll go, well, how is he shot in the chest? Well, it's a visual thing, isn't it? It looks best if it sticks out the middle of your chest because that looks great. So he paints a breastplate with an arrow sticking out the middle of the, the chest. Maybe that happened. Maybe that was his interpretation of what happened after the tales. It could be just as true that the arrow went under the armpit and into his chest, where the armour is significantly weaker, where it's not covered by a breastplate. We don't know this stuff. So we know that the longbow was fantastically effective. We know it was pivotal in winning victories, but we don't actually quite know how. How did it perform against the armour? For years now, I've been watching tests on YouTube or reenactment shows and things where people are putting arrows through breastplates. But a lot of the problem is the breastplates are not real breastplates. They're just very cheap, very thin breastplate-shaped objects, but that doesn't make it, make it a breastplate. And I do an awful lot of materials work, you know, in my day-to-day -day work. I use steels, I use irons. And I spent a long time thinking, I can't see how an arrow can go through a full thickness breastplate. I can't see it. So myself and a bunch of friends got together and we... Uh, Kevin made a fantastic breastplate. Will made fantastic arrows. Joe is a fantastic shooter. Um, uh, Toby Capwell um, is a fantastic jouster, fighter, historian. Uh, and I did the talking, I suppose. And uh, yeah, we just got together and tested it. And arrows bounce off breastplates. Although I will say that arrow bounced off that breastplate because of course this is not definitive none of it but it allows you to start looking at the direction of what things are going um how things are working it can't ever be what what i'm doing can't ever be a scientific test you know rigorously done with lots of sample sizes i'm just not in a position to do that um but it, for me it, it indicates a direction of thinking and if the arrows go through breastplates every time, we know it's done. If they bounce off every time, well, makes you think again. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it means that there is a definite difference in the psychology between making a knife for Tom Hardy and Taboo, which is specifically designed to do people harm, to an eating knife in, in Wolf Hall, which is a genteel object. That's the word I'm searching for, really or a crossbow. Um, so it, it does become a little bit strange, although a lot of the requirements are the same, that it has to look real. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So can you tell me a bit more about Joe the Longbowman's style and how he shoots? Yeah, so... Joe Gibbs is a heavy bow shooter. Um, not only does he shoot heavy bows, he can shoot over 200 pounds now at the moment, which is a ridiculous draw weight. Um, but he's also incredibly accurate and he shoots several times a week and that's why. But he's anybody who's interested in archery, Joe Gibbs is shooting is breathtaking. Now, he also, it looks really strange. And this is a, a really interesting thing because... Um, the way they seem to shoot a bow in medieval times is quite different to we do it now. And as Roger Ascham, he wrote a book called Toxophilus in early 1500s, wrote an awful lot about archery. He called it shooting in the bow. Now what Joe's stance does of turning his body slightly away from target and puffing his chest out is it allows muscles in his back and his shoulders to be used that like an Olympic archer, a standard archer that we would watch these days can't use. And so what that means is a modern archer uses basically his his upper arms and his shoulder. Joe can now get his whole back into play as well. And that becomes massively more powerful. And it allows him to draw a massively more powerful bow. But it means that his stance, the way he's shooting, looks really quite weird to, to modern eyes. But if you look at the paintings of English archers from 15th century they have this very strange sort of slightly cross-legged stance very often when you look at them. And if you watch Joe from the front, you'll see a similar kind of stance to the way he stands. And it's that oddness about his style that is what allows him to draw these ridiculous white bows. As well as doing historical items, um, what I refer to as sort of museum grades, so basically ones which are as close to the pieces in the museum as you can find, I also make props for film and TV, which... The word prop can be a little bit dirty because it's like, oh, make it out of MDF and aluminium or something. But when I make my props, I try to make them as real as I possibly can. So if a knife has a horn handle on it, I'll use horn. I won't use a plastic that looks a bit like horn. And if it has a steel blade or a bronze blade, I'll use the appropriate material for the blade. There are some safety issues in there. So not all productions want that kind of thing because it means that you 
end up with a blade that really can do somebody harm. And you have to be careful to how you manage them, how you manage the process of them being used. And obviously they can't be too sharp, you know, enough so that it looks sharp, but not actually sharp. So actually an awful lot of productions don't simply don't want items like that. That's not how they're set up. But then you get other ones, like I did um, work on Wolf Hall, for instance. So I uh, instructed archery on Wolf Hall, but I made crossbows and some bits of leather work and eating knives and things like that for Wolf Hall, where what they very much don't want are items that look like props. And so that's where my work sort of comes into its own. I, I understand the language of television and film and the requirements of it and how we do it. Uh, but nonetheless, I make the items look as real as I possibly can. So I did it for uh, for Wolf Hall, very similar sort of job in a way to what I'm doing now on, on The Witcher, which is fantasy, but we'll come to that. So I also worked on Taboo in a very similar capacity to Wolf Hall, that I was making real objects, real knives, but just sort of slightly blunted down. But what was very different was Wolf Hall is mm, high class, um, high end reproductions in the sense of I'm making crossbows for people who are going hunting, for instance. It's, although they're weapons, they're actually a sort of a peaceful object. In, in that sense, or at least if you're not a deer, they're peaceful. Um, but Tom Hardy and Taboo, I was making personal knives for him, which were specifically designed to do people harm. So they're actually, they just because I make weapons doesn't mean I'm so, some sort of nutter psychopath. You know, I'm actually a pacifist at heart, to be honest. I, I am not a warmonger in any sense at all. But it means that there is a definite difference in the psychology between making a knife for Tom Hardy and Taboo, which is specifically designed to do people harm, to an eating knife in, in Wolf Hall, which is a genteel object, that's the word I'm searching for really, or a crossbow. Um, so it, it does become a little bit strange, although a lot of the requirements are the same, that it has to look real. And then I do work, for instance, I'm doing a lot of work on Witcher at the moment, um, series one and now series two. So it's, of course, a fantasy series. It's a fantasy series for Netflix <clears throat> and a very successful one. And so fantasy, you might think, well, you could just make whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. But in a way, this comes all the way back to talking about the subconscious where we spoke earlier, that the human mind, even though it doesn't necessarily understand an object, it kind of knows what's right and what's wrong, or a lot of the time it does. And so if you make a fantasy sword that is just wrong, all the lengths are wrong and the balance is wrong and the weights are wrong and it all's just not right and clunky, your subconscious mind will notice that and it becomes less real and it becomes less believable to you as a viewer. And so actually my historical input of making objects which are real so I'm not a prop maker, I'm a weapons maker first. And that really comes into its own on, on a fantasy piece like uh, like the pieces for Witcher. Um, you know, because you can just bring that language back in and then the, the sword or the weapon or the knife that is delivered on screen becomes far more real because of it. And the partnership I've had with Nick Jeffries, the head armourer on that, has been absolutely fantastic developing these pieces up. And bringing them to screen in a way that is real, even though it's fantasy, you know. So don't dismiss stuff like The Witcher as complete bunkum and junk. 
the story is a fantasy story, but the things that are in it, the weapons that are in it, are just from a history that hasn't existed. That's all they are. They're as real as any other sword is real. They just have never been real, if that makes sense. It does. I'll, I'll ask you a bit more about The Witcher a bit later on in our chat, but I just wanted to touch back on the point that you mentioned about teaching the actors to shoot in Wolf Hall. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us how you go about teaching someone to shoot in a realistic way and some of the top tips that you have? Now, when we're talking about the archery in Wolf Hall, what was really important was to get them to shoot like people shot then. Because as you see people shooting now on TV, you know, whatever, down the local archery club, is not how people shot in the year 1500 or 1520. It was much more physical and the stance was quite different, much more like Joe's, so that the legs are a bit wider apart, the body is turned away from target slightly, you're drawing past your chin, you're drawing the string towards your ear. All these things are absolute clues to it being medieval archery. And so if you portray the archers like they are in almost every TV programme or film, shooting in a modern style, it's wrong. It's like having a digital watch on, it's no different. So I tried to get them shooting as they should be shooting. So uh, Claire Foy actually came um, to our house here and I taught her in, the, in my field at the back there, had breakfast with the, the family and the pet rats that we had at the time. So that was kind of fun, not to be forgotten. Um, and then Mark Rylance and Damien Lewis I taught uh, in another place. But with all of them, I spent three or four or five hours coaching them how to do it. And then again, when it actually came to the filming, uh, being there on set and just guiding them a little bit there uh, about how to move your bodies, because that was the absolute giveaway for it being a medieval style or a not medieval style. And for me, I just felt it was important to get it right, because why not? So you've talked about ways in which you wanted the archery to seem very realistic to the period. But when you're making weapons and armour, sometimes you can't always be historically accurate if it's for TV and film. Mm. Can you give us some examples from shows that you've worked on of times when you've had to sacrifice the accuracy for the sake of looking good on camera? I'm always striving to try and get historical accuracy right, because very often if you've got to do a job, you can do it right or you can do it wrong. It doesn't take any difference in a length of time. So, you know, just do it right. So that's what I try to do, but it's not always possible. So I worked on a show called uh, Outlaw King. Yes, Outlaw King, which is another Netflix film. And it had uh, five Scottish gentlemen who were basically running around the, the wilds of Scotland in the year 1300 trying to evade capture. They were all noblemen and the status of their items should be quite high, but they were now masquerading as sort of like lower-born people. So they needed a lower-born dagger, each of them. And there's a, a lovely historical dagger called a bollock dagger. You can guess why it's probably called that, but anyway, that is what it's called. And they wanted to, the film company wanted to equip these five guys with bollock daggers. Well, there's only one bollock dagger from the year 1300 that I know of, or around there. That's really early for that style of dagger. Now, you can't give five principal actors all identical knives because suddenly it, it becomes hard to tell one person apart from another, you know, by looking at the kit or whatever. It restricts the way you can tell a story if everybody's the same. So I can't give them five daggers that are like the only one that I know from that period. It doesn't work. So what you need to do is, is fudge it. So I, I took the handle form 
uh, and I, you know, change the proportions of it slightly. I increase the size of this. I put a brass bit on the end here where there wasn't a brass bit on the original. And then the blades were slightly different shapes and all this kind of thing. And what it means is you have now drifted away from the one item that you know to be correct. Now, of course, there were different variances on that one item in the year 1300. We just happen to have only one in existence. But I am deliberately trying to make one different to another. And so, for instance, I'm bringing in a blade shape that might be 100 years later on that looks quite different. I know it's completely wrong. There might be 10 people out there who know it's wrong, but actually everybody else on the planet just accepts it for what it is. So that's fine. If I'd made a completely different knife, like a Roman dagger or a something else, then suddenly things do start to glare out at people. So there always has to be an acceptance of fudging things. You know, you're, you're a fool if you think you can get away without it because you're just telling a story. And a story that is told in two hours or four hours over a, a screen has to have its own language to tell that story effectively. Simply put, baddies always wear black. You know, it's just a, a simple trope that we all know. You can not have a baddie wearing black, but it saves you 20 seconds of screen time and dialogue if he wears black, because you immediately know he's a baddie. You know, so it's just, it's just one of those things. That being said, as a viewer yourself, are there any inaccuracies or any times when you think, I really don't understand why they compromised on that in a historical TV show or film? Yes. The, yes and no. Because the thing is, unless you are actually standing there on set... I mean, OK, so as an example, um, you are wearing a prop and the camera guy goes, oh, actually, that it's in, the, in this light, the colour of that is really bouncing out at camera and causing a bit of glare... Can you dull it down and darken it? So you dull it down and darken it. But now he's been able to change the lens aperture or whatever it is that camera guys do. And now the bit of fabric that is sitting behind it is now sort of coming more into focus and more into prominence. Now that bit of fabric might have a pattern on it that doesn't work with the artificial lighting that's going on. And suddenly that pattern is sort of like looking a bit fluorescent and glowy or something like that. So that now needs to be changed. And, and the thing is, all this stuff, so suddenly... You know, you're looking at it and you go, well, oh, that's the wrong pattern on his jacket. That really is, that's not right. But unless you're actually standing there at the beginning and going, well, in this early dawn light, that just wasn't working. You just can't know. And the same is true for any other decision that's made. It could be that somebody involved in the process has absolutely no idea or couldn't care. Or it could be that there's 50 little things that have gone on that you just have no way of knowing about. And everybody's sitting there going, oh, God, it's not right. But, you know, it's the best we can do in the circumstances. You've just kind of got to let it go. But then there's an example I gave in one of my YouTube films. There's a film called The 13th Warrior. I can't say it's high quality entertainment. Well, actually, no, I can say it's high quality entertainment. It's fantastic. It's not highbrow entertainment. But there you have a bunch of Vikings parading around. And some of them were wearing old Roman armour or gladiator's armour. And you think, well, okay, maybe 600 years out of date, possibly, okay, you know, maybe. But then, you know, you've got that. But then you've got somebody wearing Spanish conquistador helmets and you're going, well, that's definitely not right for the Vikings. So you just got to suspend it. You enjoy the film when you've been the film. You know, it's one of those two things and you make your choice at the beginning. 
So having worked in this industry for around 25 years, there's been a lot of changes in technology. And I was wondering how that's impacted making prop weapons. Are there any um, types of weapons that have fallen out of favour or any improvements that you've really noticed have come along? Well, the funny thing about technology, and I suppose you mean computers in many respects, is, and the ease with which computer-generated effects are done, is really for 25 30 years, everybody's been going, oh, God, I'm going to be out of a job next year. Or, and, and, and yet here we are. And I suppose a lot of people have fallen by the wayside, but some people haven't. And yes, I, uh, 30 years ago, there would have been more of a requirement for film swords than there are now, but there's still a requirement. And, you know, we're filling that gap. Where things have changed is that techniques have changed a lot and what is possible has changed a lot, and the ease with which it's possible. So what I mean there is that um, what you can do now, for instance, you can just cut the blade off a sword and you can just leave you know, 10 centimetres of blade sticking out of the guard. And the rest of it you can put in by computer-generated animation. So you can have a, a sword fight where you're chopping people's arms and legs off and stuff where you don't have to go anywhere near them because actually you haven't got anything attached to the sword that you're waving around. And you can just animate the rest of that blade in very easily. 20 years ago, that would be possible-ish. So people might do it in very occasional moments where there was no other way. 10 years ago, well, it's a little bit difficult, but maybe we'll think about it, but it's a bit of a decision. Now you can do it at the click of the fingers. Because it was previously retractable swords that were used for that, right? Um, it depends on the context. So a retractable sword, the best way to think about it is like a car aerial. So what it is, it's a blade which is made, not on close inspection, but it is a blade that's made to look like a real blade. It has distinct disadvantages because if you imagine a dagger, the handle has to be longer than the blade on the dagger because the blade has to retract into the handle. So that's one thing. So you end up with very weird looking weapons. A sword can't do that. So you need a multiple, um, like a car aerial, a multiple um, retraction and multiple telescoping of the blade. That's technically really difficult to do. It's really challenging. But what it also means is that any grit or dirt or fake blood that gets in that system that stops it working properly means that what was a retractable dagger becomes a dagger. What was a retractable sword becomes a sword. And so people would need body armour effectively that where they were going to get stamped in case the item didn't work as it was intended to work. So, you know, they were all a little bit difficult. But the other thing what you must consider is that just like a car aerial, if you stab somebody with a car aerial, it will retract, it'll go back in. If you slash somebody with a car aerial, it won't go back in, it will just hit them. So uh, a retractable weapon only answers some of your problems. And computer-generated alterations to things just makes life so much easier. Um, and it allows, well, a few things. Everything has always been possible, but it's a question of money and time. And so what it does is it takes time and money out of the equation and it makes it easy. So these extraordinary sword fights that we're all used to seeing on TV now are just so much easier to do than they ever were. 
So finally, I really wanted to go back and talk to you about The Witcher and mm -hmm. the different demands of making props for a fantasy historical show rather than a purely historical show. So I wondered, which do you prefer making props for? In many respects, the demands are quite similar from one to another because of the way I approach it, because I do approach the fantasy weapons as real items, just from a parallel universe or from a history that hasn't existed, but they are they are real. So a lot of them face the same problems that you can choose an easy way or a hard way to do any particular job, you know, or, or design, and you have to work your way through it. So a lot of the problems are the same. Intellectually, I find them the same because I try to make a real object. Obviously, the difference comes when you're doing a historical one, you you either look at the design that you've been asked to do, or very often I do a lot of work where I'm effectively proposing to the client, and it comes either out of my books or out of my head, you know, uh, as we're coming from my knowledge of it, or museums. So effectively, I'm putting together a design that fulfills the brief with the historical one, but using a palette of historical design styles, forms. When it comes to the, the fantasy one, you know, you're, you're working with the armourer or the designer to again put together something, but the palette of designs and forms, a lot of it does come from history because those are real objects that work, you know, and, and, and physics was the same in 1400 and it's the same, unless it's a magical universe, it's the same in a parallel universe like Witcher, for instance. So physics works the same way. So weapons are the same, but you have more of a, a license to do some sort of slightly groovy shapes or, or whatever. So, I mean, I made, um, on Witcher, I made some swords which were made from dragon bones, for instance. I haven't made many of those, you know, from the medieval period. And so, you know, you can sort of invent that, but nonetheless... That dragon bone sword still has to start thicker at the guard and thin down as it gets towards the tip because it is still a sword. You know, so a lot of the issues become the same, but it's the yeah, the the palette of designs and, and your little whimsical things that you can do uh become wider. And the fact is that I might love the pommel off a Roman sword and I want everything else to be medieval. Well, you know, in witcher's land, that sort of thing is possible because people have lived for hundreds of years or thousands of years and they might have favourite bits and they come from different cultures and different places. So you can mix and match stuff a little bit around that. It becomes a little bit more fun and a little bit more whimsical as well as hard-edged. So when you're making a weapon or a piece of armour for a fantasy character, how do you go about imbuing a sense of their personality and their character into the piece that you're designing? Well, really what you need to do is find out the backstory about about the character, where they've come from, uh, where they are, and perhaps even where they're going, really. And that allows you to develop that up. I mean, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of work with uh, Nick Jeffries, the head of Armoury on, on Netflix, is The Witcher. And he is fantastic at this. And what he, you know, he goes through the scripts, he finds out everything he can about the character, how they interrelate with everything else. And a really, um, he has a really global view of the whole design of, of, of the weapons and what, what people have got and how they do it. He then sort of fleshes out a character for the weapon, if you like. And then between us, we develop up 
the piece and I, I realise it. So um, I'm absolutely loving the work that, that I'm doing with him at the moment. Um, and I think the pieces that we're making are really, really standout pieces. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just loving that work and and the way it's all handled, you know. So really, in a way, that's a question a bit more for, for the not here Nick Jeffries. But um, yeah, it's that's what you do. You have to envisage the piece and and everything about it because it's not a it's not just a sterile object out of a museum that has very little backstory to it other than three lines of text you know this now is going to be a living working piece that belongs to a character be it Geralt or Yennefer or whoever out of a series like The Witcher um or any you know anybody else uh, from any other fantasy series the, the same is true the more life you can give to a piece Life in how it looks, but life in the story that goes around it, the better it's going to translate when it comes on screen. That was Todd of Todd's Workshop. If you'd like to find out more about his work, head to toddcutler.com. You can also find him on YouTube at Todd's Workshop. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.